the importance of being clear about what it is that you're trying to do is critical, right? So people that are developing counterterrorism policies, you can't just say things like, oh, we want to degrade and defeat an organization, right? That becomes essentially meaningless. You know, single counterterrorism measures alone are unlikely to work. This is a domain in which warfare is likely to be unending. So instead of thinking about a binary of victory or defeat or, or you know, total political death of these, of these kinds of adversaries, think about managing them. Welcome back to the Irregular Warfare Podcast. In this episode, we will explore counterterrorism policies and strategies over the past 19 years. We also welcome another teammate to the podcast, Shauna Simmons. Thanks, Nick. So today we tackle the question, how should we be thinking about leadership targeting as a means of counterterrorism effectiveness? And we'll then look to see if there are any lessons we can draw from leadership targeting in the global war on terror to influence and shape future counterterrorism policies. Doctors Jenna Jordan and Asfandi Armir will help us dig into the implications of policies that lead to the strikes, such as the 2006 Zarqawi operation. 615 Baghdad time, Special Operation Forces acting on tips and intelligence from Iraqis, confirms Arkawi's location, and delivered justice to the most wanted terrorist in Iraq. Zarqawi was the operational commander of the terrorist movement in Iraq. Dr. Jenna Jordan is an associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech and the director of the Program on Emerging Technology and International Security. She is the author of the book, Leadership Decapitation, Strategic Targeting of Terrorist Organizations. Jenna's book will serve as a foundation for our conversation today. Dr. Asfandi Armir is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. His most recent research focuses on counterterrorism policy and drone warfare. I am Nick Lopez. And I am Shauna Sennett. And this is the Irregular Warfare Podcast, a joint production of the Princeton Empirical Studies of Conflict Project and the Modern War Institute of West Point, dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners to support the community of irregular warfare professionals. Here is our conversation with Jenna Anisfandiar. Dr. Jenna Jordan and Dr. Asfandiar Amir, we appreciate you both joining us today. It'd be great to dive right in and start off with, with Asfandiar. Can you tell us about your research and what motivated you to study counterterrorism? Uh, Nick, Sean, and thanks so much for having me today. Really excited to uh, to be here and to be in conversation with with Dr. Jenna Jordan. Uh, so, so for the last many years, I've been working on U.S. counterterrorism operations using uh, air power, surveillance technologies, uh, special operators, local allies, or a combination thereof in safe havens and weak states. And the main motivation for this research agenda uh, when I started working in it was uh, that many analysts, practitioners, scholars were deeply skeptical uh, of this form of warfare, arguing that these kinds of campaigns provide short-term gains at best or more likely tend to be counterproductive. And indeed, it was a major debate during the Obama years uh, on which even key national security principles clashed openly. You know, for, for example, 
the then senior advisor to the president on CT and later CIA director John Brennan came on one side of this issue and his his one of his national security uh, principal peers, director of national intelligence, Dennis, Dennis Blair, uh, offered a very different perspective. And then this question came up again during the counter-ISIS campaign uh, when the efficacy of a hard-charging counterterrorism campaign uh, was uh, was put on the table. Uh, so when I was starting out grad school, I was very intrigued by this debate, wanted to understand it better uh, and inform it with high-fidelity data. So over the last five years, my research uh, has tried to empirically uh, and theoretically understand both the causes and consequences of USCT warfare uh, in theaters such as Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. Uh, and I also have some ongoing work on U.S. missions uh, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And across this research agenda, the key outcome or benchmark um, I try to evaluate uh, is the benchmark that the U.S. government has set out for itself, which is meaningful disruption and degradation of, uh, of targeted organizations. And Asfandir, you focus specifically on drones, which many would characterize as very symbolic of counterterrorism initiatives in the post-9-11 era. What drew you to specifically evaluate this tool? Sure. So so drones uh, at one point in time was the preferred uh, mode um, of warfare, uh, given that the, the United States government was facing threats from various places where it could not deploy forces on the ground. Uh, and uh, that you know this form of warfare started in Pakistan, but then uh, was adopted in Somalia and Yemen uh, during the Obama years. And uh, given the salience of these campaigns, given the fact that the, the one of the main reasons the U.S. government was interested in this kind of campaigning was to mitigate the threat of international terrorism from these places, uh, and how you know drones uh, were seen as an antidote. Uh, to the problem of deploying forces, I, I, you know, I thought this was a really important question, and and we all, we needed to sort of understand in what respects drones were were unique uh, or not. That's great, Asfandiar. Thanks for that, and we will come back to your findings a little bit later on. If I could transition over to Jenna, I, w- I would also like to mention Jenna's book that she released uh, last fall, Leadership Decapitation, Strategic Targeting of Terrorist Organizations. It provides a, an interesting look at counterterrorism policy by using three different case studies, Hamas, The Shining Path, and, and Al-Qaeda. So I'll turn it over to you, Jenna. What got you into researching counterterrorism? So I started grad school a long time ago, um, and actually I started right after 9-11, so just a couple weeks later. And I took a class on uh, on terrorism uh, by with Dr. Uh, Dr. Bob Pape, and it was fascinating. And I found it really interesting because so much of the literature in international relations was focused on states, right, interstate relationships. And all of a sudden, the framework for thinking about the world fundamentally changed because you all of a sudden had a non-state actor that had a huge influence in the foreign policy, not just of the U.S., but like of countries globally. And so I felt at that point that, you know, there was this emerging literature in the field of terrorism, but there was still a lot of space and there was a lot of work that needed to be done. And theoretically, I felt like there was a lot of interesting opportunities for thinking about non-state actors within the context of international politics. So that was how I got into it. I think part of it was timing (laughs) and part of it was just general interest in in non-state actors. So I was really interested in this question of 
leadership targeting, right? When thinking about counterterrorism, like Asfandi, I was you know, really interested in counterterrorism policy kind of specifically rather than thinking about motivational factors, right? Why do terrorists do what they do? Which of course is part of that question. Sure. But I was really interested in it from a policy perspective. Like why are, you know, what are the, why do states make the choices that they make about counterterrorism policies and what are right. the impacts of those policies? Do they work? Do they not work? And why? Um, what explains the resilience of organizations? So what I ended up doing was coming at it from an organizational perspective and saying, what makes a particular group more or less likely to suffer at the hands of particular counterterrorism policies? So I decided to focus on this one policy of leadership targeting because at the time this was seen as like, a kind of silver bullet, right? Like if we kill the leader or arrest the leader, the organization is not going to be able to function. And so I wanted to, to understand whether that was in fact the case. The different cases that you, you took a look at, um, what organizations stood out in terms of resilience and, and, and why? Yeah. So basically what I did was I started collecting data and I, you know, look, including, um, you know, going through 2016, I, I've looked at close to I don't know, 1,400 cases of leadership targeting. And so what I wanted to do was take a look at that data and say which groups were more or less likely to fall apart after, or, or not even fall apart, right? We can talk about the nuance of, of how you're measuring the efficacy of this particular policy, but whether certain groups mm -hmm. saw a decline in activity or an increase in the lethality of attacks or a decline in their overall survival rate. So I sort of looked at these different measures of efficacy and tried to understand why. And so I started with saying, well, what do I think might make a particular group more or less susceptible to targeting? So I started there and I sort of identified like particular features that I thought might make a group more or less resilient. And so I thought groups that might be highly bureaucratized or groups that um, had a particular ideology or groups that had support. And I'm happy to go into those variables a little bit more and unpack that. But I sort of started there and thought, okay, let's think about these particular characteristics. So I looked at things like a group's age and a group's size and their organizational type and different features of the instance of decapitation itself. I looked at other variables as well, like the regime type of the country in which the attack occurred, um, you know, GDP, things like that as kind of control variables to sort of, um, you know, get at it a different way. But what I basically found was that, you know, the largest groups, the oldest groups, groups that were separatist, groups that were religious, tended to be harder to destabilize when their leaders were both arrested and killed. Um, and I found actually a not much difference between whether looking at whether or not a, a leader is arrested or killed doesn't have that much of a difference, but it's really these organizational variables. So, you know, groups like Al-Qaeda, right, have turned out to be remarkably resilient, right? ISIS is showing itself to be the same way. The PKK, the TTP, Al-Shabaab, right? Some of the really big organizations have tended to be really quite resilient. That's just at a broad level what I found. No, that, that's great. Um, if, if I could take a step back, because you mentioned organizational resilience and some factors, or I guess, you know, some contributing factors to organizational resilience. Could you unpack those a little bit and then sort of apply them either to Al-Qaeda or yeah. Shining Path? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so basically, it's, I know I'll start with bureaucracy, and it's kind of awkward to think about using the term bureaucracy when you think about a terrorist organization, right? It's sort of we often we often think of groups as being really highly decentralized, and and actually these aren't mutually exclusive. And I'll go into that in a moment. But but basically, we can think of bureaucratization as kind of like an internal mechanism that makes the group that can increase its stability, 
right? It can facilitate clear succession processes, right? It can be a group that has a clear um, administrative division of responsibilities, right? Rules and routines, standard operating procedures, all of these things that characterize what we think of as bureaucracies. You know, bureaucracies tend to be more efficient. Sometimes they tend to be seen as more legitimate in the communities in which they're operating, right? Because they have these kind of organizational rules, this stability in place. And so that was kind of the first factor. And what I found interestingly is that groups that tended to be sort of bureaucratized at the upper levels of the organization, right, administratively, and that at an operational level were more decentralized, right, at at a lower level, that the combination, this hybrid structure, I I thought would make a group much more resilient. Um, And in fact, that is kind of what I found. Um, The second factor has to do with support. And I think this is... um, this is, a, this is a hard one to measure statistically. Um, and so I sort of had to get at this by looking in the cases a little bit. Right. Um, but basically, it's the idea that, you know, groups need support at a really basic level just to operate, right? When we think about terrorist groups, right. we think about what do they need. They need members. They need money, right? They need resources. They need places to hide. They need to get fake passports, right? They need, like, all of these things, that having support in the communities in which they operate make it possible for them to be able to do so. And so groups that, um, you know, I mean, even information, right? It just, I mean, at so many basic levels. And so groups that are operating in places where they tend to have more support are going to be more likely to uh, sort of withstand shocks and external shocks to the organization. And the final variable has to do with ideology, which actually does intersect with communal support in a certain way. And so what I thought here was that certain kinds of groups are going to be more likely to be resilient. And so what I started thinking was that religious groups and separatist groups might be the most, the hardest to weaken. And and actually, it's interesting when, you know, when people started thinking about leadership targeting, they went back to these models of charisma, right? And there was this kind of standard view Mm -hmm. that terrorist organizations were headed by charismatic leaders. So think about someone like Shoko Asahara, who was the leader of Aung Shinrikyo, right? He was seen as this kind of deity, this sort of godlike figure, right, that was imbued with special qualities. You know, you can think about the classic Weberian definition of charisma, right? It's something extraordinary, something that is... Um, it's motivating. It's motivating, exactly. And and what people argue is that it's fragile, right? It's a fragile basis of authority, whereas the other sort of bases of authority tend to be more stable. But then what I found was that all these religious organizations that were headed by what we would think of as charismatic leaders were actually harder to destabilize. So I thought, okay, we need a different model. So when I think about ideology, what I think about is basically the sort of doctrine upon which the group is based and that groups, religious groups and separatist groups that tend to have grounding in their local communities, right? They're not always representing the entire view, but maybe like a significant number of people on the ground don't depend upon the leadership for that rearticulation of their ideology. The, the ideology can mm-hmm. become very entrenched in the communities. And I think this is particularly true of separatist groups, right? Groups often represent the views of the you know separatist group from which they emerge. Now, of course, there's variation on tactics, right? How you go about achieving those particular goals, but that ideology is there. And, you know, this is something we saw with ISIS. You know, there were really, it was really, it was really interesting, right? As ISIS started losing more of its ground, 
right? You had people like Adnani, who was also a leader right. who was killed, right? Basically said, well, you could take away our territory, but our ideology is really resilient and that's going to remain. So that's kind of that, that variable. So those were the three theoretical ideas that I started with when I, when I was thinking of, of the larger project. Jenna, I appreciate the explanation of the variables. The idea of tracking organizational resilience is, is definitely interesting. I, I want to turn to Esfandiar to talk about the findings with some of his work, uh, one in particular that he co-authored with Dylan Moore that focuses on the use of drones. Sure. So so let me first sort of highlight the, the broad set of takeaways from, from that particular paper that I uh, authored with my uh, University of Michigan colleague, Dylan uh, more, uh, as well as a separate paper, which is which is related to the stream of work uh, on the U.S. drone war in Pakistan. And what I find across these two papers is that contrary to, to widespread skepticism spanning over multiple years, uh, the U.S. counterterrorism uh, operation in Pakistan was very effective in degrading the targeted uh, groups, as well as preventing their recovery for a long period of time. Certainly not permanently, but it was sufficiently long. And, and troublingly, these battlefield effects uh, were attained, you know, despite the fact that the drone warfare in that region of the world harmed uh, civilians. And three sort of sub-findings of this campaign informed this broader view. The first one was that uh, I found evidence of dented organizational trajectories of the two main targets of this campaign, Al-Qaeda and its Pakistani ally, the Tehrik-e-Taliban Pakistan. These groups suffered starting 2008 after the United States government surged uh, surveillance and targeted capabilities uh, in this region. These groups lost bases, their operational capital, similar to some of the things that, that Jenna was uh, was just mentioning. You know, their, their core organizational capital was reduced. Their ranks were checked by, uh, by a growing number of desertions. And finally, and, and I think this was a very important effect, these organizations fractured politically their alliances, important alliances began to, to wither. A second key finding uh, which informs the broader view is that, that while killing of both leaders and rank and file, which took place at an enormous scale, was an important mechanism, but it was not the only mechanism uh, which really debilitated these organizations. Instead, another mechanism which, you know, for the last few years, I think scholars uh, downplayed or didn't understand that well was this heightened sense uh, of fear of being targeted. And across a variety of empirical materials, I found that both the targets of this campaign were so constrained by this the sense of anticipation, um, um, this fear of drone strikes, which ended up crippling their routine movement and internal communication, uh, organizational communication. In addition, over a period mm -hmm. of time, both leaders and rank and file uh, jihadis came to view each other with the suspicion of being spies uh, for the U.S. drone program, uh, which uh, contributed to their, their political fragmentation. And a final major finding from this work was contrary to concerns of many, uh, many skeptics and, and critics of drone warfare, I did not find much evidence uh, of any tangible increase in recruitment in favor uh, of these targeted groups, especially due to civilian harm. That's not dismissed that anger and passion due to civilian harm or losses in U.S. strikes. It didn't exist or anything of that sort. Certainly, that was very real. I think local communities were deeply aggrieved. 
However, my findings uh, negated the impression that the groups benefited from a stream of angry recruits. Instead, a more recurring theme for the later years of the campaign was that these groups experienced desertion and shortages because of the stress of operating under drones. And I also found that these groups struggled to integrate uh, some of their available partners in their organizations because of the fear that, that they may be spies for the, for the drone program. So these are sort of the, the broad set of findings. I can pause here before getting into the implications, but I first wanted to put these, these findings on the table. Before we go any further, Esfandiar, you mentioned in your work a system to measure counterterrorism effectiveness. You called it the legibility and speed of exploitation system. We, we actually emailed back and forth on this. It seemed very similar to the targeting cycle F3 EAD. So find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, and disseminate the, the acronym used in, in doctrine. Right. Can you explain uh, this two-part system, legibility and speed of exploitation? Right, right. No, that, that's, that's an important question. So as I looked at these findings... I was trying to make sense of like what happened, right? This is this is a lot of damage done to some very important organizations, which the United States government or the international community at large cared deeply about. Uh, how might we understand these battlefield effects? And I ended up identifying two major factors. The first factor that I identified was that the United States government here came to develop a very deep and extensive knowledge of the civilian population where the armed group is based. But the word I use for this kind of knowledge, depth of knowledge, is legibility. And, and what I found was that the United States government developed and ended up drawing on large-scale metadata collection or legibility infrastructures of the civilian populations of, okay. of this very remote region of the world. And mind you, this kind of knowledge is distinct from uh, intelligence. You know, it comes a step before intelligence. Um, and this kind of knowledge is used to generate intelligence leads. And it comes from, say, population data that the United States government was able to gather on its own, as well as through data sharing by uh, a local partner, large-scale communication interception, and then some really cutting-edge techniques like, uh, like patterns of life analysis, detailed pattern of life analysis of targeted regions to separate the armed group from the civilian population. But that's only just you know one piece, one side, uh, one dimension of the story. Another dimension that I think the United States government exerted a lot of effort uh, on was its ability to exploit available leads gleaned from this kind of knowledge of the civilian population in a timely manner. So I think this is where the F3 EAD part comes in. You know, I, I think all CT practitioners know, understand that that members of targeted armed groups, you know, when being chased in CT operations, they're consistently trying to escape detection. Uh, most intelligence has a very limited shelf life. It, it tends to change fairly quickly. As a result, the capability to act quickly becomes really important. And this requires some really unique bureaucratic capacity to process intelligence. You, you, you require very sophisticated uh, forms of analysis, you know, decentralized decision making for targeting becomes uh, really important as well. And then the final piece, which is where the armed drones uh, come into play, you know, rapid striking capabilities are, are absolutely essential. So that's the exploitation piece. And together, you know, when you piece this legibility and speed piece, you know, together, I think they uh, they come to constitute a, a very powerful set of capabilities, a system almost. 
So in terms of applicability, does your model make sense both in situations where drones are being used unilaterally and where they're used in conjunction with forces on the ground and other counterterrorism tools? So the United States government certainly has developed the capability to uh, or uh, has acquired modes of deploying this capability uh, in a unilateral fashion, as in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia. Over a period of time, there's been a surge in, in these kinds of capabilities. You see a deployment in parts of the Middle East, Africa, which are geared towards unilateral deployments. But then if you look at surge era Iraq, uh, again, you see strong shades uh, of this particular system. And there, the way the system is deployed or the kind of resources that are mobilized or some of the tactics that are adopted, um, those tend to be systematically different. However, at a conceptual level, you again see an effort to really deeply understand the civilian population and then uh, act upon information that's generated from this kind of knowledge of the civilian population uh, fairly quickly. So, so again, the U.S. government's become very powerful at implementing this system in different ways, in, in different kinds of uh, operational environments. Right. And I, I wonder when you start dissecting many of those nuances, if this may in fact actually reinforce some of Jenna's findings. Do you mind if I ask a quick question, Eskandir? It's, I, I Your research is so interesting and I love the nuance of your findings. And I love you thinking about this idea of like information collection and the sort of the ability to capitalize on this. I think that is just a really fantastic way of thinking about it. But I wonder if there's a distinction between, which is I'm thinking about, you know, sort of how our two works can fit together, right? And that my work tends to focus at the leadership level. I'm not looking at the targeting of operatives at, um, you know, sort of, you know, not just top leader, but, you know, members of the upper echelon, but I'm not looking at targeting of like the sort of um, operational level, um, the lower level, even lower level commanders. And so I'm wondering if you found in your research a distinction there. And so thinking about things like the sort of fear of targeting or the lack of increases in recruitment or the desertions and shortages of resources and things like that, if that primarily came from that repeated targeting at that lower level, right, where lots of you think about, too, like lots of information and things would be coming from maybe that level and not from. So I'm just kind of wondering if you found a distinction between that and in, in, in your totally. research I, at all. I, I think there is, you know, I, I think of our works as more, more complementary uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, debating about the same same point. And uh, the, the complementarity comes from the fact that I think the as I read it, the key outcome variable that your work is focused on is kind of political death. I think leadership targeting is premised on this idea that it can bring about a, a political collapse of these, these targeted organizations. And on the other hand, when you look at some of these USCT strategies at the level of specific theaters, they tend to move away from this notion of political death and focus on something a little bit more immediate, which is just organizational destruction. Maybe there's a theory there that, you know, sufficient levels of organizational uh, destruction or degradation will lead uh, to political death. But but that assumption really varies. Um, you know, for, for instance, I, I don't think policymakers held that view regarding the campaign in Pakistan. But one of the key groups and and campaigns that i have thought about to uh, to sort of think through these dynamics is you know the afghan taliban in afghanistan i think the united states government has brought to bear some of this these same kinds of capabilities at a fairly large scale 
in that country over a long period of time. You see an effort to cause uh, attrition of the rank and file of the lower echelons, similar to Pakistan, as well as sporadic uh, leadership targeting, you know, whenever the US government has had the opportunity. And yet you don't see the same kind of degradation uh, or disruption, either in the at the peak of the surge era, you know, from 2010 to 2013, uh, or more recently, you know, under, under President Trump, when he once again uh, surged the CT efforts starting 2017. And so why is that? Uh, I think I think that's I'm, I'm you know, I still don't have a good answer, but I think the best answer appears to be that there is you know, that some of the variables that you highlight in your work, communal support, bureaucratization, perhaps for a uh, for a group like Afghan Taliban that is systematically different from some of its peers like Al Qaeda, or, or the TTP. So I wonder if like a lot of this has to do with how we're thinking about what it is that we're trying, like, like what it is that we're actually trying to explain. So, you know, like thinking about like organizational, like group capacity, right? So that has to do with information collection, or that has to do with the impact of desertions and shortages and things like that has an impact on the capacity of an organization. And, and in my work, right, I mean, I'm not just looking at political death, I'm looking at changes in the frequency with which groups are able to carry out attacks, or in their kind of survival rate over time, which are different ways of getting at capacity. And so it makes me even think about for for people, you know, for practitioners or people who are thinking about it from a policy perspective, Right, thinking about how do we measure the efficacy? So, you know, there was that recent report that came out, was like a joint report, DIA and CENTCOM on ISIS. And basically, you know, they were kind of saying, well, ISIS is still active, right? ISIS is still operating. They're still a strong organization, right? They have money, they have recruits, they have resources, they're active. But it's interesting because if you're thinking about it in terms of them losing territory, Right. Like, OK, great. That's a win. They've lost lots of territory. But it's but it's getting at this. And I think you're right, Asfandir. You talked about this idea of like and, and I, I, I agree. I, I actually think that your work has much more nuance in terms of that kind of like understanding that operational capacity than mine. I think I'm looking at like a more macro level, but getting at that nuance of what efficacy means is so critical because that's how you're going to determine the efficacy of different policies and how you can compare different counterterrorism policies, which is something that I actually want to do down the line is be able to compare whether, you know, drone strikes or whether more conciliatory measures or amnesty or bringing groups into political processes or all of these different, you know, range of, of policies on sort of a continuum of how coercive they are, like how that affects that measure of what we're looking at. So um, I think that's, that's part of the question. I'm sorry if I took us off course a little bit, but. <laughs> no, it's actually really helpful, especially as we start looking at what the policy implications are, because, you know, we just discussed what efficacy looks like, but your research looks more at what the consequences could be, what the adverse effects are of leadership targeting. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I actually wanted to, to go back to, as Fondier was saying at the very beginning of, of our discussion, people often talk about is like the adverse, you know, outcomes of, of, um, 
of drone strikes, right? People talk about, oh, they're more likely to cause recruitment or, you know, increase kind of maybe uh, sympathy or, you know, for, for the movement, things like that. And I, and I, it's, it's really interesting that you, you, you don't find that to be the case. Um, and I think that's really instructive because that was a big debate, right? There were people that were just sort of like looking at it very anecdotally and kind of um, trying to understand what, whether that, that was something there. Um, so that actually is something that I've, I've thought about in this work is, is does, uh, leadership targeting have that kind of effect, right? Does it cause groups to get more recruits or have more sympathy for the organization? Um, and I think there is something different when you're looking at the targeting of leaders versus thinking about, you know, sort of drone strikes more broadly, which can impact all levels of the organization. You know, when you target the leader of an organization, it's something incredibly visible and incredibly powerful. And so even though I'm, you know, challenging this idea that the charisma of the leader really matters, right, and it's something really important, because I don't actually think that is the big factor, right, I think it's more of an organizational factor, you know, that predicts or that we can use to understand whether or not groups are more or less resilient. But that said, there's something about the leader and the visibility of that that does, I think, have an effect, right? And we've seen, and, and, and part of that relates to communal support. And so that when you have cases of organizations where they do have a lot of support on the ground, you know, the, the very visible death and, and even arrest of a leader is very powerful, right? So for instance, um, actually in the case of Scenario Luminoso of Shining Path that I have in my, my, um, in my book, when, um, you know, Guzman was arrested, they basically like put him in a um, striped, like, you know, prison out, not outfit, you know, attire or whatever, in a tiger cage and like widely broadcasted this. And this was actually like a very powerful thing. Now, he called upon his followers to like lay down their arms and stop their, you know, and, uh, you know, at, at some point, but, but that was a very powerful image. And so, um, and, and I think that can have this kind of effect that it can generate sympathy for a particular group. We saw this a lot in the Israeli case, right? When there's high level leaders that are killed, you often see like really dramatic instances of suicide attacks just in the aftermath. And they'll say, you know, this attack is to avenge the death of a particular leader. So I think those counterproductive consequences are really important. So just a note for policymakers, what, what should they be thinking about when they're looking at uh, CT policy moving forward? Looking at just organizational activity is like a really important variable, right? And if you see an increase in activity in the aftermath of leaders being killed, to me, that signals maybe this isn't the best strategy, right? Maybe, um, you know, something that increases a group's activity, that increases a group's sympathy, that increases sympathy for an organization, perhaps this isn't the best. And so that's why I really want to start looking at different counterterrorism policies in a comparative framework to see maybe more conciliatory measures are more effective, right? Maybe things that are less kinetic, you know, for lack of a better word here, are more effective. Um, and so, you know, there haven't been a lot of studies that have compared the efficacy of these different measures. And so I think that's a really important next step for people um, as you start thinking about how to formulate policy. No, I, I just wanted to sort of second the importance of that uh, of that point by by Jenna. It's a really great point, specifically because I I think if you look at the campaigns of the past, especially the ones that I've looked at, where the U.S. government's going after all ident all identifiable leaders and then 
all other identifiable members of the organization at a at a large scale at an industrial scale these campaigns took place in a certain political environment when counterterrorism was extremely salient when the united states government was ready to you know uh, push all kinds of resources uh, towards these campaigns and i think going forward you're going to not have these kinds of resources available uh, at least at that scale which is which limits the the US government's ability to uh, to manage the fallout of these the, you know these kind of counterproductive effects of say leadership targeting as might have been managed in the case of al qaeda central's uh, leadership targeting mm-hmm. uh, so so paying a lot more attention to these these uh, these counterproductive effects on the battlefield i think is going to be even more important and trying to tailor strategies in the face of resource constraints when you're trying to not destabilize a local partner state uh, in some of these regions as well as ensure your own security i think i think that's that's going to be both hard and important especially in an era of, of great power competition right you know re- resources moving forward are going to be tough there's yes. competing requirements yep. so if you've picked something up from your research that you would want to share with practitioners what would it be right so so if i could yeah provide some some advice and mind you i'm i'm firmly of the view that in this domain the the tactical and strategic level really bleed into each other and there's sort of you know unlike conventional warfare or even more uh, latest versions of hybrid warfare uh, that are now being say say taught at at uh, ntc i think the in in this domain the two really come together and what i see uh, you know operators struggling with is the fact that they despite two decades of this kind of warfare they're still not reconciling with the fact that victory is is not sort of possible or perhaps even the goal right i i think given the the kind of efforts many have made they they wonder like why is this war this kind of warfare still ongoing and my point to them would be that this is this is the kind of this is a domain in which warfare is likely to be unending so instead of thinking about a binary of victory or defeat or or you know total political death of these of these kinds of adversaries think about managing them uh, your role in this in this enterprise of counterterrorism is to actually help manage uh, the the threat these, that these actors pose to local partners as well as to the the security uh, of the country at large. That's about all we have time for today. I, I would like to thank both of you for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation on counterterrorism and irregular warfare. So so really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be in conversation with both of you and Jenna. Thank you so much for um, having me. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with you all. This is great. It's a great dialogue and, you know, hopefully we can continue the conversation. Yes, this is this is definitely a lot of fun. We will have episodes coming out every other week. Up next, Kyle and I will have a conversation about the effectiveness of training partner forces with Matt Kansian of MIT and Stephen Biddle of Columbia University. After that, Nick will come back with Kyle to talk to former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, Mark Mitchell, and former Congressional Staff Member, Pete Milano, where they will discuss irregular warfare oversight in D.C. 
Please be sure to subscribe to the Irregular Warfare Podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn to start a conversation about past or future episodes we have lined up. One last note, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government, 